the bigger picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. And for the bigger picture today, I'm joined by political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Um, Mike, we talk fortnightly and so many things seem to have happened in the last fortnight. I'm having to remind myself uh, of everything. Um, uh, one of the biggest things, certainly, is we do not have the same health secretary that we had before. So uh, just rem- I'm sure everybody knows by now, but just remind us briefly what uh, what happened. I'm sure we all wish we could unsee <laughs> what we saw. Uh, so just it's possibly not not since Edwina Carey and John Major have I oh. been so in danger of losing my breakfast. Yes. <laughs> Um, I, I should I should say at the start of this, um, thoughts go out to uh, Martha Hancock um, and her family at this time because it must have been a very difficult fortnight for them. Uh, yes. Footage emerged two weeks ago of the Health Secretary Matt Hancock and his advisor Gina Colardi-Legeno in his office in a rather steamy clinch. Uh, which uh, the, 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 there's numerous facets to this story anyway, from arising from uh, the pressure that the health secretary has been under since arguably since the middle of last year over his handling of the pandemic, um, exp- expanded upon by Dominic Cummings leaving government and disclosing private messages in which the prime minister disclosed a less than favourable opinion of Mr Hancock to questions about uh, allocation of contracts uh, speedily and to the friends of the health secretary. But in the end, his downfall was brought about by video footage of him snogging a university friend in his ministerial office. And there are even murkier questions now about how the actual camera on which the footage was recorded came to be in his office in the first place. Well, yes, that was going to be one of, one of my questions. We've got no further with knowing that. I mean, I did see some... some um suggestion that it might have actually been a security camera pointing outside that got turned round, but we've had no idea yet, do we? No, and it's important to say that this this issue needs to be looked into here. It's very easy to say that perhaps the person who did the footage had a favour. Um, the Mail on Sunday explored that the, the CCTV's footage was leaked by to, to their paper by uh, a DHSC uh, employee who was critical of the government's um, lockdown rules and saw mm. Mr Hancock's behaviour for what it was, um, incredibly hypocritical, and, and also um, not just uh, politically damaging, but personally damaging as well. Uh, he He's left his wife over this. She had no idea the affair was going on. So the personal conduct of ministers matters, and it's the first time for in a long time that a minister of Boris Johnson's government has resigned, certainly from the cabinet, over questions about their conduct. And bear in mind, we've had allegations of bullying against the Home Secretary. We've had allegations of uh, funding irregularities uh, for the Community Secretary as well. Uh, so Matt Hancock's departure from government almost marks a almost a slightly welcome turn to reality when we have politicians actually want, willing to resign over uh, issues of conduct. But on the other hand as well, it meant that there was a very rapid change at the top at the time of the pandemic probably something that would not have happened a year ago. And it's also meant that Sajid Javid, the former chancellor and uh, serial holder of government posts since the Cameron administration, is back in government now as so well. Then. Before before we look then about what his arrival might do to change the complexion of the, of the cabinet, um, let's roll back a bit. I mean, it's quite odd to 
encounter a unanimity of opinion when it comes to COVID and what everybody's been having to cope. There's, as you will know, a wide range of opinions. Some people think the rules are absolutely fair and some people think they should be stronger, but you know, everybody thinks a different thing. The one thing every one of my friends or anybody I spoke to was, was united about is how annoyed they were that there seems to be this one set of the rules for uh, most of us, and then another set for the high ups. Um, there'd been, I think I'd seen on Twitter a little while earlier, Hancock wearing a mask going into Downing Street and then removing it the moment he got inside. I don't know if you saw, saw that one. Um, but clearly, he didn't feel that the rules that he was insisting upon for the rest of us applied to him. And we also had, of course, that ludicrous situation with the G7, which seemed to annoy lots of people. And then, you know, for anybody who's not a massive sports fan, to see everybody crowding into to Wembley or to Wimbledon with seemingly very little uh, social distancing taking place at all, does make you wonder, you know, wh why the rules are still as they are if they're not concerned about all these things. Well, we know that the rules aren't going to be um, in place for much longer. The government intends to relax the majority of visible signs of COVID restrictions from masks to social distancing to restrictions on numbers and table service from the middle of next month, but that's a separate issue here as well. The, the issue about hypocrisy, I think, is the pertinent one. That's the one that has to cut yeah. through. I think there's some suggestions that it may have even cost the Conservatives a potential uh, uh, win over Labour in the Batley and Spend by-election. The issue, however, though, is really to do with the connections, the the phrase that predominated when David Cameron was prime minister was chemocracy. But um, Gina Colangelo, when she entered government, she was an unpaid advisor and mm. a, a, a former university friend of Mr. Hancock. Um, she was given a parliamentary pass by Lord Bethill, who is a minister in the department still at this point in time. He is the, the minister um in the lords responsible for health case also the main covid response minister too so she had access to parliament through a parliamentary pass under him he's under investigation for that now the um this this i think really raises issues about um the, the judgment not just of uh, cabinet ministers and ministers below yeah. that level but also the prime minister too and in, in who's allowed to come into government to advise them because obviously we can talk about the choice of a cabinet, but we, we spend far too little time, I think, talking about the choice of advisors that goes on behind the scenes. Mm. And this, this is, is something you, I mean, over the few years that we've been talking, that this is a topic that does come up from time to time. Exactly. And, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm parroting the great Steve Richards here, but he, he makes the point, I think very correctly, that you should judge a politician by who works in their private office and who advises them, who, who the political appointees are, because they are, in theory, they can appoint whoever they want to advise them. And mm. time and time again, we see the Conservatives and Labour both falling back on the same narrow set of people around them too. Now, um, so we Clement talked only last time we spoke about the Labour's new, is it head of communications? Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Again, who, who comes who used to advise Tony Blair. So yes. there's an issue here of who gets drawn in, but also the fact that um, the, the, the role that uh, Gina Colando filled inside DHSC was not that of a political appointee, a special advisor. She was a non-executive director at the department who is in theory there to oversee the performance of the department and to act as a check on it. Uh, to have that kind of now personal conduct aside here, you know, and the, you know, I, I don't doubt that both um, both of them have been deeply embarrassed by the video footage being leaked, and there's 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 undoubtedly whoever leaked it was not doing it for the purest of motives, 
as well. There are questions of how she got her job in the department. Is it based on merit? Is it based on personal connection? This goes back to not just to Dido Harding and the numerous um, connections she's enjoyed throughout NHS Test and Trace, but also to Dominic Cummings himself, who is still holds the record for the ultimate letdown of government in that trip to Barnard Castle, which we mustn't move on from too quickly. And it's very easy for Dominic Cummings to... Hmm. Um, lay the blame at Matt Hancock's feet, but we mustn't forget that that big dip in trust in government at the time of the start of the pandemic came because of his actions, not yes. those of Mr. Hancock. And this, this feels pretty much in the same vein, except after, you know, it's, more, it's almost a year since Barnard Castle. Um, you know, I think people are rather more fed up perhaps than they were then. Um, it's not so long ago, of course, that Cummings was actually um, uh, giving testimony to um, uh, MPs in which he was not particularly complimentary about the health secretary, but also gave the impression that the prime minister wasn't particularly complimentary about the health secretary. I mean, the, the fact that Boris Johnson refused the day before we record this to say three times whether or not he would have sacked Mr Hancock, uh, whether he did sack Mr Hancock, uh, says a lot. But also don't forget that Downing Street fought tooth and nail to retain Dominic Cummings at a time when he flouted the rules, mm. whereas Matt Hancock was gone inside of 24 hours. And I don't think enough people have talked about that, that mm the amount of political capital that was ex that was expended to keep ministers in that post a year ago clearly is not in place now because Priti Patel did not have to resign when faced with those bullying mm -hmm. allegations. Robert Jemrick didn't have to resign when he faced questions over his dealings with a donation for the Tory party from a property donor as well. But Matt Hancock went within 24 hours of Dan. Yes, not, not much chance of Matt Hancock denying that the footage was genuine, was there? No, no. And, and yet the Prime Minister, the, for, for one virtually a whole day was saying the matter was closed wasn't he yes but i think what happened behind the scenes was the uh, strength of opinion on the conservative backbenches became increasingly clear and matt hancock has been the most visible uh, face of the the bad side of the lockdown rules the prime minister has ultimately been responsible for all the decisions mm. and I, I i was having a, a lengthy conversation with a, a fellow pundit on twitter about this when he was um, talking about the incident with Chris Whitty being accosted in the park by those two gentlemen and saying, oh, this is what they deserve. I said, well, no, actually, he's an advisor. The ministers make the decisions here. We mustn't lose sight of the fact that the, 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 the political decisions have all been taken by ministers. They may have had advice and guidance from people like Chris Whitty or, or Dominic Cummings or whatever, but the ministers are still ultimately responsible for the decisions taken in government, and we mustn't lose sight of that. And it was still Matt Hancock's decision to appoint this woman to his office. It was his decision to engage her. It was his decision to choose to break the rules on a government building, and he was caught because of that. Well, uh, now's a good moment perhaps to take a breath, and then we must um, think about what it might mean that we've got a new health secretary. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. I'm in conversation for the bigger picture with political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. So a new health secretary, well, I have lost track, is it 15, 16 months into a, a pandemic, mm. and probably one with very different ideas to uh, Matt Hancock, at least if we understand from his first utterances. Yes, and I think it's important to say that Sajid Javid's return to government has been met in circles in Westminster with sighs of relief. Uh, his departure last year from the chancellorship was surprising, 
uh, to any outside Westminster, but given the tensions that were going on behind the scenes with Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane, his departure actually removed one of the few counterweights around the cabinet table to the Prime Minister's influence. Um, Mr Javid is one of the few people who's actually served across different ministries in different roles, so he's been varyingly Culture Secretary, Business Secretary, Community Secretary, Chancellor, and now Health Secretary as well. It's a, level, it's a breadth of departmental experience that can only really be rivaled by Michael um, Gove of course, Home Secretary as mm. well at the end of the May administration. That's not to say Javid hasn't put some feet wrong in that time. He, as Home Secretary, made some questionable judgments about the reneging uh, Shumaima Begum's British passport, for example. But he also was called in, in the, he's also being used to handling difficult situations. So he was the Community Secretary handling the response to, uh, of the Grenfell inquiry. He has been um, responsible for dealing with the aftermath of the Windrush incident as well, when Amber Rudd had to resign over that. And he was also Chancellor in the first difficult period, doing a one-year spending review during the minority Johnson government as well. But he's also one of the few people to be unafraid to walk away from the government, and as he proved under um, Theresa May, he's unafraid to say his own opinion as well. But he's also more clearly of the uh, somebody who understands the Treasury processes as well. And going into the, the spending review, health, the health service might be quite confident of getting a good settlement now from the, spe- from the spending review, given the fact they have a former chancellor now as their secretary of state. Mm. But the messaging that Javid has put out has been interesting as well. So he wrote an article in the Sunday papers this week where he said, clearly, we have to learn to live with COVID. Now, that at a time when the majority of opinion opinion polling shows that most people still favour the restrictions being in place is a very interesting manoeuvre. And this has been boiled down to a simple issue of whether or not people will continue to wear masks when it's no longer mandatory after the 19th of July. Yes. Um, What else? I mean, presumably, or the impression I got was that we basically got the Chancellor and the Health Secretary sort of on one side of the argument. And um, the Prime Minister, we get the impression from Dominic Cummings, were just sort of basically wafting around in the wind, depending on which way he thinks it's going. The Prime Minister very much blows. He's, he's straw in the wind. And even then, it's important to say that Matt Hancock was someone who pushed quite firmly for lockdown restrictions. Sajid Javad, I think, is wanting to reap the benefits of seeing those being lifted quickly. I think it's fair to say that the... He's got to have an easier time of it dealing with the um, being the new broom, as it were, mm. at DHSE, because the inquiry that will start next year will now be focused mainly on what happened inside the Department for Health that the Prime Minister's senior advisor or former senior advisor said was not fit for purpose. But there's questions here really for around the whole cabinet table as well. Now, Mr. Javid has the advantage of the fact that for most of the pandemic, he's actually been out of government here as well. Mm. So it also, in my mind, puts him back in the frame as a possible successor to Boris Johnson as well. And I think if I were Rishi Sunak, I'd be keeping a very careful eye on Sajid Javid around the table as well. Because although health is famously what Ken Clark described as a political graveyard, Mr. Javid has proven time and time again that he has the ability to manage difficult ministerial portfolios, and he's one of the few people around the cabinet table that's, that, with substantial experience at a time when the, the cabinet's never been, looked, in my opinion, more underpowered. He uh, has a point, though, talking about living with COVID. I mean, I've, I've been reading um, ONS numbers that show that um, 
15 times more people are dying of flu and pneumonia now. But we don't, we've never sort of been that bothered about flu. Um, it may well be, of course, that we change our mind now and that in future, uh, you know, in flu season, people are going to mask up and be incredibly careful. Do, do you think as a nation we will have changed our attitude towards risks that we used to take for granted? And for instance, we used to just, nobody really thought much about flu. People might take a jab. People don't think too much about you know, falling down the stairs or crossing roads or, you know, these are accidents we all just cope with because somehow our internal risk uh, assessment is able to cope with them. COVID seems to have changed all that. It's important to say that I think there is a general climate of anxiety that even before um, the pandemic that permeated certain parts of society, especially among younger generations. We, we live in a world now where we are made more... Um, we're required to be more alert than ever to mm. risks around us, whether it's things like climate change or if it's health risks from, you know, the prevalence of cancer in society. And now the pandemic has brought into focus this question of whether or not after this, we will still be continuing to wear masks or washing our hands regularly. But last night, uh, you know, because we're recording this the day after England advanced through to the finals of the Euros, mm. uh, we've got to mention that irrespective of, of politics yes, here. Yes. But the important thing for that is that was the first big national event televised where there were thousands of people in the same stadium, many of whom weren't wearing masks, and it felt normal. And people reveled i think in that normality and i think there will still be a powerful pull among groups of society particularly in social events to come back together and to throw caution to the wind and i hope there will be now obviously i don't want to belittle the concerns of people who are worried about covid and have concerns about their loved ones and obviously you know i can relate to coming out of lockdown myself I have experienced a fair degree of anxiety coming into new settings I've started a new job and seeing people again and outside my comfort zone but that that fundamentally is a good thing life isn't life without a certain element of risk and on this occasion I actually think that the health secretary is right to say that we have to learn to live with it what I am less certain about is the wisdom of rolling back the restrictions so definitively on July the 19th if they have to be reimposed at a yes. later date I think the incremental return of freedoms gradually when we could be on a sustainable basis in line with the vaccination program is a much better way to proceed because the sort of hokey cokey approach we had last year does grind people down and it might be the government feels that it's best to give us the summer months outside as well but you see lots and lots of doomsday predictions on the um lots and lots of doomsday predictions on line you know saying there could be three million more cases we don't know if we lift the restrictions covid levels will rise but the death rate is still comparatively low we have to give the vaccines time to work and we know now there's going to be a booster program rolling out from the autumn as well but of course he's got other problems as well other than covid you mentioned cancer there but when you think about problems with with mental health uh problems with not just cancer but um, waiting lists the nhs now are astronomically high um the bosses in the NHS are saying they're losing so many staff because they're being ordered to isolate, um, because they get pinged by test and trace. Uh, I mean, that's a massive, massive um, mountain that the health secretary has got to try and cope with. 
Yeah. And to be fair, anybody would struggle in this portfolio as well. And I'm glad that if, because obviously in our, in our system of government, we are the pool of people who could be ministers is limited to basically the 650 parliamentarians yeah. in, in practice, the, the members of the, the governing party as well, that we have actually got an experienced minister behind the desk at DHSC as well. But as I mentioned earlier as well, there are questions about the conduct of um, other ministers in that department too. The Department for Health is going to undergo an immensely difficult period in the coming weeks as well. And suffice to say, there are um, there are considerable challenges as well that, and I say this as somebody who does a lot of work in the healthcare space these days, that haven't yet been addressed. So there's a large amount of the state's maintenance backlog, for example, £10 billion of that. The government's doing a refresh of the health infrastructure plan this year. There's questions about the uh, whether or not these thousands of people who... Mr Javid says didn't come forward, seven million people who didn't come forward for health conditions. So Mm. there is a question of what needs to happen. How wide-ranging will the COVID inquiry be? Mm. I think there needs to be a specific one into how the health infrastructure in this country works. And at the same time, the government is pressing ahead with a massive uh, reorganisation of the NHS. Now, this you may think we've been here before, but don't forget these are changes that the NHS itself has advocated for through the NHS long-term plan. They are creating what are called integrated care systems at a level now. I won't bore you with the bureaucratic detail, but essentially it's designed to give the central government back more control over the health service, which is one of the issues that was found during the pandemic that the Lansley reforms meant that the Secretary of State for Health could not um, push the right levers, as mm. it were and get things done. Yes. So the issue is now, um, the issue is now that we have to separate out what is happening structurally Mm. within the NHS, what is happening culturally at the Department for Health with the... um, the level of control for say for example so for example at the moment we've had a very powerful figure in sir simon stevens he's just left as the head of nhs england is that the best way to continue and then of course the wider health infrastructure as well because don't forget even last year the government um tore up public health england in the middle of the pandemic because yes, it was found yes. not to be fit for purpose. again another lansley era reform and all of this is on sergeant javid's desk as well now if he gets this <laughs> right this is enough to put him at the top of the running to be the next prime minister in my opinion well, time for us to take another pause for press. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Now, Mike, um, who would have thought that uh, um, since our last chat that... Uh, discussing um, a by-election, such an important by-election, would actually come so far down the list. You very briefly mentioned um, Batley and Sven, but only very briefly, so do tell us. I mean, Labour held on to it, and you were implying that possibly what had happened with Matt Hancock could have been a deciding factor in Labour keeping the seat. I think actually in this, all politics is inevitably local, and it matters. And I think that the, the, the very few people would, would pretend that the campaign in Batley and Sven, a seat that's had um, three MPs since 2015, 
um, would have been uh, conducted with any degree of, of cordiality. The George Galloway, the uh, mm. the former respect and former Labour MP, stood in the seat and very heavily was very heavily gunning for Labour's candidate. Kim Ledbetter, who is this is the funny thing about our, our this this honestly that the by-election exposes what I think is one of the the main flaws in our parliamentary system is that um, you could be people see their MP as being the sort of ultimate arbiter of authority in their seat and power, but if you have an opposition MP, um, is that really fair? If your if your MP isn't in government, then because mm. because ultimately I think a lot of the disaffection was being directed towards Kim Ledbetter because Labour had been in power there since 1997. But it's a Conservative government in Westminster. Ryan Stevenson, who was the Tory candidate, barely had to do anything. But Kim Ledbetter, Joe Cox's sister, held on, won the seat. And it was one of those feel-good results, I think. And I think we have a new... And she, she was very heavily targeted on the campaign trail, not just by Mr Galloway, but also by members of the community um, who criticised uh, her stance on LGBTQ mm. rights as well. And I don't... I don't think that it is, you know, irrespective of wherever you stand on the issue, it is it is a very brave thing to go to the seat where your sister was murdered and to be chased down the street by activists and to keep your cool because hmm. the family, especially her, would have had that at the forefront of their minds the entire time. But more importantly for Keir Starmer, this was his first real solid gain as Labour leader as well. Now, yes, because whole- you, you had said a fortnight ago that after losing Darlington and, and Chesham, that, that if he lost this, his days would be numbered. I would think Chesham's not worth counting because Labour would never do well in Chesham mm. anyway. Tactical voting plays a big part in it as well. But if they'd lost badly in Spen, I think, given they, they picked argue, arguably the media felt was the right candidate for that by-election as well, then, but it was a much reduced majority and the government quick to point out that you know, it was a very large swing to them as well. So it, Labour are not out of the woods yet, but it, it has at least... Um, it has at least put the Angela Rayners of this world, the socialist campaign group of this world, back in their box for now. And it's funny because I, I don't think that we've quite read the by-election result right. Because it's going to go down, I think, as one of the, you, know, you and I both know that, you know, the Orbiton by-election, there are dozens of them throughout history that are iconic. But I think Batley and Spen matters because it shows that Labour could hold on in the seat. Now, we're not talking about the 1980s here where they're making spectacular by-election gains. Given the existential crisis the party was facing after the 2019 election, to stem that, to stop the bleeding, as it were, is no small feat for Keir Starmer to have achieved. Now, we can't pretend that he, he has been a great success in his first year as Labour leader, but as with Jeremy Corbyn, it's important to give him a fair crack of the whip. And it, it, it's going to be a wake-up call for him to come up with some really striking ideas and to up his performance. And in Kim Ledbetter, he has the first of a cohort of MPs that he can at last start to call his own. Um, you've talked many times since the pandemic started about how difficult it was for Labour to, to come up with a different message because it was hard for them to disagree with the government. It does seem to me in the last few days, though, as we've been, the government has been talking about the lifting of restrictions, that Labour is taking a much different attitude and thinking it's all happening too quickly. 
Yes, and I think the important thing to say is that Labour's incrementalist approach to lockdown restrictions hasn't won them favours among the minority of people who oppose lockdown measures as well. But in that sense, they have just been going with the broad thrust of public opinion too. And there is no, let's be clear here, there is no moment in which it is right to lift restrictions. There is no right or wrong answer in this situation. It's entirely down to, as we discussed earlier, the risk profile people want to feel and also how how safe people feel going out into wider society. Now, I think we'll see certain things like going to sporting events surge quite quickly. But we'll also see, I think, people being perhaps more cautious about international travel. I think people will be more hesitant to return to working in the office. You know, maybe in a, in a few years' time they might take that. But there are certain things as well that we have to bear in mind that Labour obviously don't know, nor do the government, what the effect is going to be yet. And one side is the health um, is risks. The other side is, of course, the impact on child development from 18-year-olds at the moment who may have had their careers stunted all the way down to those children who haven't been able to go into nursery at the appropriate time yet. And to make such definitive pronouncements about the lifting of lockdown restrictions and to claim it's a denial of our freedoms really does misread the situation we're in, which is utterly uncharted. Now, we've been in these you know, uncharted waters since arguably since 2013, when the Brexit referendum came along, but we've never as a society experienced something in a long, such a long time that has affected every aspect of our lives and our psychology, to our physiology, to our political outlook. And for Labour to take a cautious line on this makes sense, but it, it, the road for them to do that, it's like grommet with the, with the railway tracks in uh, the wrong trousers. <laughs> They're running out of, of the ability to do that. And Keir Starmer should take Batley and Spen for what it is, a wake-up call that the time for caution is past and Labour needs to start saying in a post-pandemic world, this is what we will do for you. Mike, thank you very much indeed. We haven't really got time to look at the uh, the, the, the change in travel rules and some of the other um, amendments, but I'm sure we will still have plenty to talk about when we next gather, which will be in a fortnight's time. I've been in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian. He is author of the Groucho Tendency blog, and he will be back with me, Simon Rose, uh, in a fortnight's time. Mike, thank you very much indeed. The Bigger Picture going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.